Welcome to another episode of At Home with Leaders, the series that is part of the Leaders Performance Podcast. Its aim is to unearth stories and insights from the top people within high performance and what they're doing as sport returns to our lives and edges back to some sort of new normality. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute, and I'd like to say hello again to all the returning listeners and a big welcome to those of you who are joining for the first time. It is a pleasure to have you with us. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by Kaiser, who are also the main partner of the Leaders Performance Institute. Now, Kaiser have been changing the world of fitness for over 40 years, and we're proud to have been partnered with them ourselves for nearly a decade. More than 80% of the top professional sports teams in the world now train with Kaiser exercise equipment. If you want to join them, then get in touch with us so we can intro you to one of the team or head to kaiser.com to find out more. In a moment, you'll be able to listen to our conversation with Jill Ellis, discussing change strategies, assistant coaches, trust, personalities and environments and much much more as you can probably tell these are the sorts of topics that come up time and time again amongst our network with this in mind we've made a few changes here at the performance institute recently the world of high performance is evolving and so are we so if you'd like to find out more about what we've been introducing including our brand new performance communities as well as our events content virtual learning and networking then please head over to leadersandsport.com forward slash performance and join over 700 other members at the home of Total High Performance. Now on to today's episode. As always, it's a pleasure to have my co-host from California alongside me once again. It's founder and CEO of Gaines Group, Mr. Steve Gira. How are you and how is Los Angeles today, Steve? I'm doing well, Matt. Um, yeah, no, uh, Los Angeles is good. It's starting to get a little chilly here. Um, you know, getting down into the uh, mid-60s some days. For those Brits out there, it's what was that, like 12? Something like yeah, that? A dr- um, dream of that. I know that's exactly what you guys get during the summer, right? Um, no, things are good. Things are good. Um, excited. Uh, NBA announced they're coming back. Um, you know, the kind of dates that they're targeting for coming back. It's great to see that, you know, we're still over in Europe playing football. Things are going pretty well. And uh, in the news of the last couple of days coming out about vaccines, whereas I think we still have a long time to kind of go get get through all this, um, you can kind of see a little bit of hope on the horizon. And, and uh, really excited to be also welcoming our, our guest today who um, provided hope to a lot of young young girls and, and women across uh, the United States for a long period of time during her role, you know, heading up the U.S. women's national team. Absolutely. Good stuff. Now, you've given a bit of a clue there, but our guest today is a recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Accolade at last year's Leader Sports Awards, but I'm sure you might know a little bit better as World Cup winning head coach of the U.S. women's national team. It's Jill Ellis. Good afternoon, Jill. How are you? Hey, good, Matt. How you doing, Steve? Good to hear from you guys. Not bad, thank you. Where in the world are you speaking to us from? I am actually in Miami, so a little warmer than where Steve is. Definitely warmer than where you are, Matt. Yeah, but, yeah at least that I'm one. down in Miami. I've lived here about six years now, and uh, yeah, it's it's been good. Obviously, we've gone through a pretty rigorous last last month with all the election, and and now we're kind of coming out on the backside of that. Absolutely, we could probably do an episode on politics, but but, <laughs> yeah. let's, but let's not. Um, let's jump straight into it. And yeah, these conversations are moving a little bit away from lockdown and COVID, which I think we're all happy with. But I must ask you, you know, how has everything been this year? And I guess not being in a in a day to day job like you were for so many years, it must have given you a lot of time to reflect on things. So how's that been? Yeah, it really, it really did. And you know, I, I've, I've said this many times. As, 
as I know, as as many people have been hit by by this with, you know, with not just health issues, but obviously financial economical issues, you know, for me on a personal level, it's actually been an opportunity to kind of reconnect with with my family. You know, I spent 200 odd days a year on the road when we were in massive competition. So, you know, a lot of time away and I've got a young daughter. So in that regard, it's been this real time to pause and kind of rejuvenate. And, and for me, just an opportunity to continue to kind of evolve as a person, read a lot more and listen to podcasts and, uh, and continue to try and grow a few Netflix series in there, to be honest as well. But uh, no, for, on a personal level, it's, it's been this kind of pause that I think I potentially needed, but obviously in terms of, you know, where we are globally, it, you know, it's, it's, it's sad really we're in this state, but uh, I am optimistic. I think as a leader, you have to be that. So I'm optimistic that with new leadership will come more solutions. I hope. And Jill, you've spent your entire life devoting yourself to leading human beings in sport on and off the field. And, you know, I think sometimes as a leader, like you get really attuned to watching how other leaders handle their business. Um, from from that perspective, what, you know, are there any like large takeaways or even small takeaways from watching other leaders in and around sports during the lockdown? Like, can, can you tell us a little bit about like, you know, who do you think did a really good job? Is there anyone that you really admired? And then also not without calling anyone out like are there are there opportunities that maybe some leaders maybe might have missed yeah i mean it's it's a great question i mean listen i think the the nba i mean people were thirsty for something that you can kind of watch and rally around and i think sport has been you know just such a, a unifier for people you know and even in in tough times i think it's something that brings some light to people so you know i think the commissioner of the nba did did a fantastic job in creating what was arguably an incredible bubble there in, in disney with just you know i can i can imagine just trying to insulate one team but to insulate almost a league with all the moving parts to that and, you know, be able to pull it off, I say flawlessly, but I, I, they didn't have, you know, massive outbreaks that you're seeing with, with some of the college teams and even some of the NFL teams. But, you know, I think he just did a masterful job in, in getting that to work. And I certainly think, you know, what he does a good job is, is bringing in player leadership to the table, like a LeBron James. I mean, obviously there's strong voices in the, within the players that bought into this, but I think, you know, as well as them seeing as a platform to talk about social injustice, I also think they recognize the need for people to have something to cheer about. So I thought that was exceptionally well done in terms of that. And, you know, the MLS did a did a similar kind of um, program with tournament format, the NWSL, our women's league over here. They, they did not have one COVID outbreak and they did a similar tournament format. So I think, you know, if anything, what this whole time has, has given us is, a, is an opportunity to be more creative and more innovative. And so I think you see things now that potentially there'll be some takeaways from this time that will remain with us, I think, you know, in terms of that. And one of those things, I think, when you like look at like your history and, and, and honestly, just like the entire history of, you know, the U.S. women's national team, but then also just women's, you know, soccer here in the U.S., um, which to me just keeps getting stronger every single year. I'm really excited about the next 10 years. Like I, I'm here in L.A. and we I got to know some of the folks over at Angel City a little bit over the last few weeks and um, really excited for for kind of what, what you see uh, you know, is coming and, and continuing to build on that. And one of the things that I think always drives into it is like higher purpose. It keeps coming up whenever I talk to like coaches and leaders in and around like sports today. And, and so thinking back through and reflecting on your experience coaching the U.S. Women's National Team, how big of it, how big of a deal was higher purpose and how much did you use that as a driver for kind of team cohesion and, and driving, you know, the success on the field that you were able to achieve? 
athletes and coaches are, are narrowly focused, you know, especially on game day, right, in terms of, you know, game plan, strategy, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think, you know, these women ever lost sight. You know, maybe it's maybe it's on the periphery at times, but then it certainly comes into the, the main focus, into, into the main lens of, of what are they trying to do, you know, and in terms of, you know, making a statement for, it's everything from being a role model to being a champion of women in, in uh, you know, C-suite level positions to, you know, women uh, having the courage to go and ask for a pay rise to women speaking their minds. Like, I think that's always something that this group has, um, you know, symbolized and represented and, and very much embraced and seen it as a as a mantle of responsibility. You know, I think that's part and part these players that, you know, this team has a huge fan following in this in this country and have historically. So I think the when they become a part of this, they understand that it's more than just chasing a ball around the field. It's uh, it's you know what are they projecting? What are they showcasing in terms of strength? Not just as athletes, but as characters. You know, speaking up for uh, the LGBT community, to speaking out on social issues, equal pay. I think these are things that it, it sits very well inside of them, and so they have a comfort level to then project that when they have a platform and and yet still are able to acknowledge that with success on the pitch comes this ability to have an even greater sphere of influence in terms of their voices being heard. And how much of that was, you know, the, the, the players themselves feeling empowered to really kind of just own and, and talk and, and really just lead both on and off the pitch. Where do you think that that really came from? Because like when I look at the U S women's national team, I honestly look at them at the players on the team. Um, I look at the culture you, you created and I say, man, that is, that is a really, that's a, disruptive force of nature when, when you think about the way that most other you know athletes kind of take care of their brand first as opposed to taking care of their community first and and and, and how did that really like who, who really drove that was there was there a specific player was there like a specific reason or was it just like kind of like a perfect storm well, I think you definitely have to step back a little bit because, I mean, the culture that, that's been around for the long time in terms of you know, the, the pursuit of excellence and this drive to, to be the best and to, you know, even back in the days of, you know, 1999 when they hosted the World Cup here, fighting to be in large stadiums, you know, having this this courage to say, you know what, people are going to come, so let's put us in the big stadium. So so just this general sense of, again, kind of, you know, as you said earlier, this higher purpose of what we're trying to achieve here to showcase women's sports. I think that's been something that a common thread through this whole generation of team you know as a when a, as a leader when you take over an organization you certainly you look at the the, the culture that exists and you say this is brilliant i'm going to keep this but as a leader, you also then have to kind of modernize it. And I think one of the things that I sort of stepped into with this US team was, you know, we were suddenly in this massive age of social media and the reach and, you know, Alex has got 9 million plus followers. And suddenly you go into this realm of, you're not just this team traveling around playing in stadiums, you are just this this kind of mega force. So I think this, this common thread of advocating for each other and pushing, you know, when they, when they go and argue for a collective bargaining agreement, it's to try and take care of everybody in that list. You know, this is just general sense of we're all in this together. And I think that's something that's been passed down in this in this team. As the head coach of this group, you know, one of the things that I certainly appreciate and recognize is you can't, you know, the, the old school way of it's athlete and there's nothing else. No, the brand, the agents, the advertising, there's so many more factors that are, are touching, you know, the, the athlete now. That as a coach, you can't ignore that, but you've also got to continue to try and figure out how to, how do you have relationships? And one of the things that, you know, I certainly understood was that 
you have to see them as people. You have to understand that having their voice, you know, allows them to feel comfortable. And when people are comfortable and there's a trust and a general sense of community, then you can achieve great things, you know, rather than this sort of isolated, uh, you know, individualism. So I think, you know, one of the things that I was always very, because it was challenging, right? Because on one hand, my players were suing my bosses. And at times I sat right there, you know, in between. And, you know, what I generally leaned on in in those periods was how do I feel about this? And for me, the, a woman advocating to better her position. I, I you, you know, I have a daughter. I like, I, I support that. I think wholeheartedly, you have to support people trying to better their position and to be unapologetic in how they com- compete. You know, I think that's part of where we need to kind of push this game, this boundary in terms of women in sports, because I still think we have a long ways to go. So, Jill, it was it was well covered when you know the when you were with the US Women's National Team that it was turnover in players during your tenure. But how do you try and, and do that seamlessly? Or maybe the question is, is it possible for it to be to be seamless at all? Yeah. Um, no. I mean, it was. Um, that, yeah, I don't think it can be. I, I think change. You know what I'm learning, and I, I've been fortunate to talk to a lot of people outside of sport and, and in business as well. And you know, one of the things I sort of learned is change is this it's actually a constant healthy state to be in. Like you don't ever want to be static. I mean, you obviously don't want to have disruption all the time, but this sense of continuing to evolve and grow, even when you're super successful, you know, you look at Apple and they're probably one of the most innovative cutting edge industry, you know, components out there. And and so one of the things that, you know, I really did adopt in here is that we have to embrace this sense that we are a work in progress, that it's not going to be static. So going through that period, you know, coming out, when you're getting six to seven months out to make major world event, you want to have consistency, you want to have hierarchy established, because you don't want people to be in the gray area, so to speak, because then people struggle. But when you're, when you're, you know, a bit further out, I think there is, there has to be this continued commitment to, again, having a fluid environment. So listen, I I think the reality of it, you can, you can talk about change to your leadership, you can talk about it to your players, to the media, you know, you can kind of forecast that this is a natural part of what we have to do. But when people are in it, it's it's a different story. And people, you know, there's stress and anxiety from change, there's criticism within change, you know, because things aren't going to be perfect, but it's a necessary part. And so, you know, what I tried to do was to sort of not forecast, but to basically share, this is how I think it's going to look. And this is how it's going to impact you. So you kind of prep people, you know, I told my players, listen, my commitment is to deepen this roster. And that means some of you might have different roles, different journey. Uh, some of you might not be on this journey. So I think trying to give people a precursor to what's coming is important. But then as you go through it, it's it's this sense of trying to bring in the young ones and get them up to speed in terms of this is our culture, these are expectations, providing you know real clarity and what they need. But then also recognizing the the assets you have in some of the veterans and, and trying to blend that. So I think really when you go through change, because typically the the, old, the the older age, the more experienced players are going to be in the majority. And so how do you go through that period where the young ones can kind of come in, establish themselves? And, you know, a lot of it is is building, is again, continuing to talk about the importance of the culture and the team first environment that you create. And But it's also building in strategies to make this team feel that every single person is important and every single person matters. And then gradually, as you sort of come through that flux, then you settle back down into this consistency. So I think it's hard. I mean, I think it's, you never really know how people are going to react. And it's rare that change is perfect. I mean, you know, 
I think we lost seven games in my tenure, but three were in the 2017 where this, there was this real commitment to kind of refresh. I also think when you're looking, you know, within the game itself, you've got to make sure that you are wanting to be ahead of the, ahead of the trends, so to speak. You want to anticipate what's coming. And so you build a team that's going to be able to navigate where you see the game trending. It's, you know, much like people do business, they look at where the market forecasts are and say, how can we best succeed in that environment by preparing ourselves now? And so everything from our tactical flexibility to the profiles of our players, there was a real commitment to uh, making sure we were built to be successful in, in 2019. And Jill, so so as as a head coach, like how do you work to continually evolve that environment that handles change and can can kind of continue to build on top of it? How, how do you and also how do you balance the tension between having a set environment that is repeatable and you know rep replicable over time versus having an environment that continually evolves like which way do you kind of lean and can you talk a little bit more about how you did involve that evolve that environment over your tenure yeah i think i think certainly you know as a leader you got you have to know your audience um you have to know what you you know what you're kind of managing and i think you know what i knew about our players was i say they're elite players but i think you know i characterize elite as is this desire to continue to evolve. Like my very first individual meeting with Alex Morgan already had established herself as a, as a major player on the senior team was like, you know, how are you going to help me get better? You know, in terms of what different types of finishing she wanted to work on, different types and elements of her game. And so when you know that that's your your audience, then you don't cater to the, you know, this is great. We're going to keep this going. It's more like, okay, we, we've done this. Now, how do we nudge that on? It's, you know, it's everything from when you're doing a certain activity that perhaps, you know, you're working on building out of the back and you've probably done it many, many times. Well, now how do you put a slightly different challenge in there? You know, do you, there's always got to be a hook of the challenge. I think when you're working with elites, that's what they live for. They're never going to be, you know, satisfied with just this plateau it's this so when you know that you're always looking to kind of develop it and I think when you look at a long-term I'm going to be a long-term plan when you look at so I looked at 2017 and I said okay we're going to build this team first we're going to build it like you know the skeleton and the framework and what's what's it going to look like we're going to harness the assets we have um we're going to combine those with what we think the demands of the game on we're going to build the skeleton and then you tell the players like our next phase we're going to start to look at relationships and and the rotations within the lines etc etc and so you kind of grow it out and when they see that there's a process one you know you're kind of evolving but two Two, you also know that this is a group of players that want to get better. They, they want to grow their game and continue to develop. So, and what I mean that develop, I don't mean you go out and work on just hitting dead balls. I mean, they wanted to see the unit as a whole evolve. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a tough period sometimes when you're not getting the results perhaps because you're committed to trying new things. But then you have to balance that with, you know, staying purposeful and finding some of the some of the progress to share with the players. You know, so part of it is, yeah, it's kind of a sales pitch. Like, listen, we're going to go through this. This is what we're going to do. And when it doesn't go perfectly, you're going to see people point fingers, check their shoulders. And that's where as a leader, you know, I was asked in many press conferences when I was going through this period with the team, are you worried about losing your job? And I, I would just kind of shoot back. Yeah, I'm not coaching to keep my job. I'm coaching in what I believe. And I knew that this, this evolution had to happen. And so I think that's, you know, constantly looking at your environment and think of different ways, different challenges. You know, even with my staff, I was committed to 
growing their roles. You know, I hired Graham Abel as our goalkeeper coach and was very clear in my final year to label him as an assistant coach, not just a goalkeeper coach, because he brought other elements. Like his growth was important as well because I wanted him to leave and be a head coach. So I think when you look at that kind of a from a, from a, a large swath, you kind of say, okay, how is everybody in here being challenged and how are they growing as people and as professionals? Yeah, that, that assistant coach piece is, is really interesting. I know you always speak fondly fondly of them and as a leader and as I guess the head coach or the manager of the buck sits with you a lot of the time but how how did having a great group of assistants around you how did that support you and, and, and how do they challenge your thinking as well because you know these phases of change that you talk about I'm sure there were a million and one thoughts going through your head on how 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 to do it so so how having a great group of assistants around you to challenge your thinking and sometimes change your mind how how beneficial is that? Yeah, you know, that was that was kind of an evolution, I think, for me from being a younger coach to to kind of getting more experience, because when I think I was a younger coach, it's almost like you feel like the assistants are sort of satellites to you. Right. In terms of they and and you tap into them. But, you, you know, you're so trying to prove yourself. And this is when you're young. But gradually, as I, as I grew and I realized, my God, I've got phenomenal people around me. If I look at this instead of, you know, how how can we make this environment better? Well, it's certainly by saying harnessing people. So we're, we're completely covered, meaning there's no gaps in what we provide our, our players. So it's looking at, you know, how do our strengths and, and weaknesses sort of balance each other out? You know, I'm not a set piece specialist, that level of detail on a set piece, setting picks, you know, front pick, back pick. That's not where I'm going to spend my time and energy and detail of focus of that. But if I have someone that can provide that, I'm going to make sure that they have their moment in front of the team, that they have their moment to talk it through in terms of our thought processes, that we can harness their assets. And that's what I really realized is when I can sort of tap into people's strengths, it makes us as a whole better. And that was an evolution for me. Um, you know, I liken it to the to the kind of you, we can kind of complete each other in terms of that. You know, I, I love the fact that, you know, I had head coaches that had been head coaches that were in my environment because it is different when you sit in that seat and you've been in the pressure cooker and you know ultimately that the final decision rests with you. And so what I knew about my staff, I think in terms of what you were asking earlier, how do you create this environment where people can be open and can challenge and you can have this really good dialogue around the game or around decisions? I think, you know, as a leader, you have to create that. And so, you know, I remember one time sort of saying to my group, I, I, I don't want Switzerland in here. I want, I want people not to have a neutral I want you to express yourself, be committed to what you, you believe. And so, and then I because sometimes they're afraid to tell you because they're afraid that that's going to influence you, right? Or they're afraid that they want to be, don't want to be right or wrong. And you're just talking when you're working with younger staff. And with the mature staff, it was the matter of saying, Let, let's hash it out. Let's really go through it. But what I knew about them was that the minute I would go with a decision, I knew they were all in, even if it was counter to perhaps what they proposed. You know, that was the, the real sense of trust we have. But I think, again, what I learned is if my if my staff felt that they were trusted, that they were valued, that, that, what, that their contribution mattered, then I would get the very best from them and we would have this very complete environment in terms of what we presented to the players. I didn't think we had gaps, you know, in terms of what we did. And I think that's being a comprehensive way of looking at it. But yeah, I mean, I just, I, and they were amazing people, you know, I mean, they were just quality human beings, also incredibly talented at what they did. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think actually, if you look at other sports, especially in the US, you have a lot of head coaches within, you know, uh, mm-hmm. within coaching setups, don't you? You know, they're, they're not, co- head coaches aren't, aren't afraid to then take a step back to 
whether it's an offensive coordinator role in, in an NFL or, you know, I think I've just seen Kenny Atkinson uh, has just taken a job with the, the Clippers in, in the NBA. And that, that, that's interesting you say well, that, that you want, think, you want yeah. that experience with you, don't you? Because, yeah, because I think now you're, I mean, the level of detail with the, with the world of analytics, you add the world of sports science, you can't be, you can't be the master in everything. I don't know sports science. I'm going to have to trust my sports scientists. Obviously I have my gut and my intuition that I, that you balance everything out with, but you know, that's where now I think the level of detail, and it's funny you said that about football, because I remember when a friend of mine, I, I, I was taking over the senior team and they said, you know, you should you should definitely look at it like that, meaning you have a set piece specialist, which is funny. This was five plus years ago. You have a, you know, attacking, defending kind of focus because it's almost, you know, when you've got 20, 25 players, it's tough to kind of really focus on one element. If you're working on your, you know, defending organized and then you're working on your attacking transition and you've got another group working against you, you want to make sure that everybody has the level of detail that you want and you need more than just one person. And I think, you know, if you look at the modern setups in teams nowadays, I certainly think there's, you know, even these these high profile coaches around the world, they all have their right hand next to them, the person that kind of, you know, fills in the gaps and they build their team. And that's why you see now, it, I don't think it ever used to be this way in, in, in soccer, but it was in, in football where they would take the whole coaching staff because you're a well-oiled machine and you, you understand each other and you know each other and you step right in. And I think you have a higher percentage to be successful faster if you've got this well-oiled machine behind you than if you do when you're kind of going in there and you're piecemealing it together. It's it's a process. So I think you see that a lot more now. I think especially, you know, over, overseas, you see coaches taking their, their whole star, staff and department. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it's, it's that balance, isn't it, of, of trusting people you know, but keeping things fresh. I think Sir Alex Ferguson always talked about how he wanted to change his assistance every few years. I mean, from your perspective, not just a skill set, because you, you mentioned set pieces and, and sports science there, from a personality perspective, um, you know, what types of personalities did you like your assistants to have? Were there particular traits that you'd like to like to see within them? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because, you know, I, I was an assistant with Pia Sundhaga for the 08 and 12 Olympics. And, you know, I think you, when you kind of come into that space, I think it's probably like siblings, right? You you find, you fill the space that is needed, right? That's your kind of job as an assistant coach to kind of, you know, maybe it's this element that's needed. Maybe it's, maybe it's more individual time with players. Maybe it's more of a focus on the back line. Maybe it's bringing the element of, you know, making sure that there's a, a light mood in, in training, you know, whatever you kind of fill the need of, of what's what's there and what's vacant. When I took over as the head coach, you know, it's hard to kind of be that factor when you're going off to press conferences, you know, and I'm talking about just managing the the social component and the, and the temperature. So I think you try and find people that can kind of balance that. I mean, you know, I think my, the, the people I was closest to, you know, my, my manager, Molly Downton was our team manager was able to really be a conduit for the players. If, if there were things that, you know, you're talking about where they're staying and things to do, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of my, actual you know technical staff yeah i think the criteria in terms of personality i mean you got to be confident in that group you got to be talented in that group because you got to hold your own because people will challenge you i mean we had some up and down or great meetings where you have to make sure you have the capacity to talk uh you know and back up your thoughts but then also people that are willing to put the team first like i think if there's one guiding principle when you have to make those hard decisions when you have to 
name a roster, decide playing time, et cetera, et cetera. Even staffing, you, you always kind of go call, fall back on what is best for the team. That's going to guide me. What is best for the team? Not as best for me as a coach, Jill Ellis, because, you know, like there might be, I want to have my buddies with me. Right. But no, it's like, what, what are the, what are the assets of the people that I'm working with? What are the, um, the things that are needed for us to have a high performing, successful environment, making sure that those needs are met. Um, so I think it's, it's, again, it's gone back to team first and, you know, I've, I've kind of let that be sort of something that just sort of steers my, steers my thoughts. Jill, you, you're, you're someone who it's like, it, it's, it's palpable how much joy you get from coaching. I'm curious, did you find a different level of fulfillment and enjoyment as a head head coach versus being an assistant coach? You just kind of, yeah, thought- I mean, I, gosh, this sounds like, yes, I think I did. You know, I think I, I, I did because I think, you know, at my, at my core, I like to build. I think that's something that I'm, I, the, the, the thought of bringing different groups of people together, different profiles of players, whether it's on the pitch, different types of people and building something that can kind of be this, you know, high performing group. That's truly something I enjoy. And ultimately you get to do that more so when you sit in the head coach's chair. I also think I am the person that I trust my gut a lot. And so ultimately, you know, if we had long conversations about lineups, et cetera, I'd say, okay, great, I'll go sleep on it. And I like the fact that the decision rested with me ultimately on, on that final decision. You know, I'd weigh the input, listen, appreciate the the experiences of my assistants, but then I like that responsibility. So I think on a personal level, yeah, I think being a, a head coach was incredibly gratifying. I mean, again, I, I had fun doing the assistant coach. I think it's, it is fun to kind of step into that world for a while and not live in that cooker, the pressure cooker, but I, I truly, I think that's where I like to be. But you like the pressure cooker, and part of the, part of the pressure cooker is uh, risk taking. You know that dynamic is different when you're coaching at UCLA versus you know the U.S. Women's National Team. How does that change a coach's view of risk taking on or out there on the field? Whether we're talking about student athletes versus some of the best players in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, I think philosophically, I remember all the way back to my very first club team when I was a super young coach and I was coaching club soccer over here. And I remember having a meeting with the parents, uh, as you typically do, and said, you know, you want me to be the coach, you know, where are you philosophically? Do you want everybody to play or do you want this to be something that it's it's going out to win? You decide because then that gives me clarity, right? Because this was my first job. But, you know, ultimately, I think that if you look at the collegiate realm, sure, you want to win, but there's more There's more to it. You're developing the, the whole person. I think more so in that environment. I think what I learned by working with professionals is they want to win, but it's it's branding's important, getting paid's important, which again all totally get but it's a slightly different look and feel to it you know there it's you got to win you know you got to win you got to be successful uh you can talk about progress you can talk about competing but the expectations on the u.s women's national team is it's gold or nothing you know that's kind of the historically the demands of the program the expectations of the program which you know i knew going in so it wasn't like i was shy or naive to that i wanted to be in that seat so i think the college yes you and plus you get to see them every single day you know in college you're checking in with them about everything. So I think it's very different in terms of the setup. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people that go from coaching college to coaching pros. Some of them, you know, when you've seen historically, don't make that adjustment well because, you know, in college, it's you, you're sort of more of the, the driver. And I think when you go to a pro environment, yeah, you've got agents, you've got, they've got other demands on them. You know, they've got family, some of them. It's it's just a different, different ballgame. You talk about the pressure there from, from, from college to obviously working with the best players in the world. Clearly, you work with some stronger personalities the, the higher up the, the game you go, I'm sure. So you touched upon this earlier, but uh, yeah, it'd be good, good to elaborate again, you, how you sell a strategy, you know, not just to your players, but to your staff as well, just to make sure that 
there is that commitment from within um, mm-hmm. you know to win something like a world cup i mean it must be a real yeah. piece of work just to sell it a strategy especially a new one so, so how did you go about approaching that from minute one yeah again i you've you've got to shape shape the narrative that you hopefully want to see play out right and, and build this set the table for success in terms of that and you know what i learned going through the the sort of change in 2015 where it blew a lot of things up you know people were uncertain of roles uh, captains were different. It was just this very different systems. We we mixed a lot of things up. And what that taught me was that you have to have this, like I mentioned earlier, you have to have this established sense of people knowing what they what their role is, what their expectation is. So knowing that that was something I wanted to nail down nine months, about eight, eight to nine, eight months, I'd say, out from the World Cup, I wanted to, if people knew they were a starter, they knew where they were a starter. Now, Invariably, you had injuries, so there was always slightly different lineups based on availability of players, but people had a general sense of what their role was. It's having those open conversations with players that potentially their role is incredibly different from what it was in the last World Cup. You don't want to have that conversation too early because if someone gets hurt, this player could potentially go from you know being a, a player coming off the bench to a player to being starter. So the timing, of, but then the openness of that conversation. And I think one of the things I understood was I think when I was a college coach, you know, I, I preached that everybody had to embrace their role. When I was coaching pros, I realized, you know, people aren't gonna love their role. No one should love being on the bench, right? But now it's about executing your role. And can you do that in a professional way? Uh, so for example, when when Carly Lloyd came out, one of our captains, of course, the media were like, oh, you know, she doesn't wanna be a substitute. I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. I wouldn't wanna be one either. So you have to accept that, but then you also have to have those conversations. Here's what I expect in terms of you executing your role. Otherwise, then there's a different conversation of whether you're gonna be a part of this. But I think the this truthfulness in, in conversation, this understanding that there's um, weight behind your decisions, there's emotion that sometimes is gonna impact from your decisions. So it's, it's kind of leading with, I, I like to say truthfulness, empathy as you go through this process. But in terms of, once we kind of got our core group um, and people understood the expectation on them, got the clarity positionally in roles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, responsibilities, then it was about creating this whole synergy of this we are one team, right? And when you name the roster, and that's why I don't wait until the last minute to name the roster, when you name a roster, it makes, makes that certainly it flips a switch because suddenly players are rapidly competing against each other to make a roster then they make a roster and now it's a matter of creating this this sort of harmony within the group that it's the good of the whole and so different things i would do was you know we we named our substitutes game changers so when we put up the lineup we put up the game changers because I wanted them to understand they were valued, they were important, they were trusted. They got the same information that the starters got. They got the same training. And every time, and again, this is a big part of modern coaches having to shape the narrative within the media as well, because you want to get your your story out, is telling the media when they would ask, you know, how are you going to win this? It's going to take 23 players to win this. It will be our depth that wins this. And when you punch that ticket as many times, your players kind of pick up on that. They understand that. They, they beat the same drum. But it does get this sense of we are in this together. I also think what we had planned, and this was part of the strategy, is players feel valued exponentially when they're on the pitch. So I'd probably say seven months out, as soon as we got our draw, maybe it was six months out, I looked at our group stage and said, we've got to rest the legs of our starters in one of these games. That means we've got to make sure that seven or eight new people coming in can execute to the level we need so that we get maximum points in our group. So our second game, we shifted this whole starting lineup. And that, again, it shows value, but it also shows trust to those players. 
And I think that's how you kind of create that. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, even little things from having some of the veterans talk to the young players about, you know, anxiety or nerves to starting every meeting with pictures of the bench celebrating goals, like all these messages you send verbally, non-verbally create the environment you want in terms of we are in this together and we're valued. And I think that what I saw in that 2019 team was a really, really tight group of players that, uh, that had each other's backs. Listen, are they all best friends? Probably not, but they're, they're going to put everything aside and make it work and do what's best for the team. You mentioned Netflix earlier. It sounds like you're, uh, you've definitely been feeding your brain over the last year. Um, what book, podcast, or show recommendation do you have for our listeners out there? Oh, um, well, this podcast that you guys do, <laughs> for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the right answer, Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I know what I'm bread spotted, Matt. Um, no, <laughs> I, um, what, am I, what am I reading right now? Um, I'm reading Man- Managing in Conflict. It's, it's this it's right, author, author over here. I've just started it, but it's about five leaders. I mean, one of them is Shackleton. One of them, I think, is Lincoln. And then she's looked at modern day leadership. And what she's really done is looked at how they've managed in times of crisis. Like, what are the common elements and what are the differences? And so I just read Shackleton. He's the first chapter. And, you know, it's, I'm just always curious to see. So that's what I'm reading right now. Um, well, I've discovered this app, Blinkist, the, the one that kind of mm, yeah, um, summarizes different things for you. Reads for that, you. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> but I like <laughs> it because it gives you kind of more of a, a sample platter of, of different books. And then you can can dig in yeah. deeper to what's out there so i, I kind of like to be kind of turned on to that and yeah i mean i'm i yeah i mean probably just I, I do love watching documentaries um like i said the social dilemma was just fascinating 13th was something that you know we just everybody should see in, in this country um the documentary uh, on the amendment and yeah i think i don't know i'm always looking for recommendations so if you guys have some fire away those are really really good i have really enjoyed um david epstein's book range this year i think that's been one of my favorites but i think your list is is pretty darn good and uh and definitely more meta than than, than mine would would be here um and certainly something that everyone should 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 go out and check out jill that was terrific um always a joy to speak with you really appreciate your insight time you know best to you and your family and uh we really look forward to, to seeing what's next around the corner for you i know you're working a lot with uh, the developmental leagues and everything else and there's a lot a lot more conversations and a lot more to come from uh, from you in the future i know thank you no this has been great i really appreciate uh being a part and um yeah i've enjoyed it very much it's it's I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been uh, it's been great. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Jill. I love chatting to you. It feels like a lifetime ago since we were at the Natural History Museum last October. <laughs> I know. That was the best party ever. I mean, that was seriously one of a kind. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? Uh, I look forward to whatever I see you again in person next, hopefully not too long. And everyone at Leader sends their love to Betsy and Lily too, so speak soon. That's it for another episode, but if you've enjoyed these podcasts, you can find many more like it on the Leaders Content Hub as well as Spotify itunes or your preferred platform check us out at leaders underscore insights on twitter as we'll post all our content on there as well jill spoke at our event in chicago back in 2016 i think so if you want to access that video as well as all the rest of the content virtual learning events and also engage with over 700 members from 150 teams in 25 countries and 20 sports worldwide then head over to leadersandsport.com forward slash performance to learn more about the home of total high performance Thanks to our podcast sponsor, Kaiser, who, as I said at the top of the show, are also main partners of the Leaders Performance Institute. They've been leading the way in exercise equipment for 40 years and more than 80% of the top professional sports teams around the world now put their trust in them. 
If you want to join them, then get in touch with the leaders team and we can make an intro to one of the Kaiser team or head to kaiser.com to find out more. Once again, thank you to John Luke and all the rest of the content team behind the scenes for making this all possible. And thank you for all listening. We hope you're enjoying these conversations. Until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon.